Willow Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. Willow Walsh. And Reagan Skaggs. And you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage with those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And Roots is open for full in-person business at 108 East Lincoln Way in Valparaiso. And another thank you to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. They are brand new underwriters to the show. Theme music is provided by WBLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive titled You Pay For It In The End and Fascinated by the Steel Mills. And as per usual, we'll go ahead and play the stories and pause in between each to have a conversation about what the storytellers experience. And Reagan, you actually were the one to choose the stories today. So what made you choose these two stories? Yeah, for the first time in a long time, I've picked stories. Um... I picked them because, uh, good news to me, hopefully good news to you also, uh, Starbucks in Buffalo, New York, got uh, unionized this past, like, I want to say week, but it could have been two weeks ago. But very exciting news. Um, I am somebody who's like, I'm working again full time in food service. So it's very nice to see some uh, some progress in these times of, of hard hard work and uh, labor shortages and all this other fun stuff. Yeah, and it would just be generally nice to see uh, labor have a, a kind of renewal mm-hmm. in its ability to negotiate for its itself, um, and especially when we're no, we, we're starting to call people essential workers, mm-hmm. and yet we still continue to not value mm-hmm. <laughs> them either by protecting them or by compensating them for their hard work. So it is good news, I think, yes. too. Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. get some. Let's let this be a good thing to come out of the pandemic. Is some please, some renewed please. labor rights movements here in the United States. Yes. Well, everywhere else too. But you know, I live here, so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I also wanted to give a shout out to Amanda Yonashadis, who is the uh, producer and editor of the first story we're going to play today. Um, and Amanda is a student um, in co-director Liz Werfel's podcasting class. And I think it's worth saying again that the Welcome Project has endlessly benefited from students who have worked with uh, either Liz or I in classroom settings or as interns, um, both of which Willow and Reagan have done for us. Um, So yeah, we wouldn't be the project we are if we didn't have the student experience and um, contributions that we do. So do you want to say anything particular about you pay for it in the end before we play it? Or should we just jump right in? Let's just jump in. Okay. I was born in Maryville, Tennessee. It was a very small town at the time. We didn't have friends. We only had relatives. Houses were miles apart. And the only time that we ever really saw other people would be when we went to church. I was five years old when I moved to Chicago. My mother's been a waitress all of her life. 65 or 66, she married, and he came with two boys. We fought a lot. Uh, There was a time that 
uh, Ricky, I used to have this doll. It was a Chrissy doll. And if you pressed her belly button, her hair would grow. You could pull her hair out. And he chopped it all off. He still wears a scar today because of that. Because I scratched his face really bad. It was deep. And, yeah, he has a scar from his eye all the way down to his chin for cutting my doll's hair. There were a lot of kids in my neighborhood. The ones I played with mostly were Chris and Debbie and Janet from down the street on 103rd and Ewing. And the Beechers from across the street, they had nine kids. We would get together and play Catch One, Catch All. Glistel School, which was also right across the street, was an elementary school. We would go there, and they had a maypole, and uh, the greenhouse there always had sports for the kids. Lynn and I used to be competing table tennis and uh, running, basketball. We would travel around to different schools and play. And then in the, in the wintertime, they would freeze the the schoolyard, and we would ice skate there. There was always something to do. I was never at home. I mean, when it got dark, I was at home, but I would get up in the morning, eat breakfast, and go out, come home for lunch and go back out, and then come back home when it got dark. The buildings that were across the alley from where we lived used to put a lot of boxes out in, uh, uh, you know, in toward the garbage, and we would get the boxes and put them together for forts, and uh, one day we did it right in the alley, and we almost all three got ran over by a truck. The driver saw the box moving and got out and got us and uh, was yelling at us, and then my mom came out, and then we all got in trouble. <laughs> I mean, I, I've always worked. When I was little, like 9 and 10, I had a paper route. And I would get up in the morning before school, and I would go and do my paper route. And that's how I made my own money. And then at 13, I started waitressing. And you have all those mill guys that would come in, and they tip really well. And I would make, 13 years old, I was making $50, $60 a day when I, when I worked. I, of course, I didn't work on school nights. I worked Friday night and Saturday night. I never went to college because... I didn't like high school. And when you're making when you're making the money that I was making, I was making more money than anybody I knew. You know? So it's it's hard to leave that type of money to go to school and then you're not making any money. You wouldn't be here if I went to college because I probably wouldn't have married your father. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I made a lot of money in my lifetime. It's just too bad I didn't save it. Waitresses make good money, but you pay for it in the end. Most of us do anyway. Your body doesn't uh, work like it should when you get older. This is WVLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso and also streaming live at WVLP.org. And uh, this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio, and I'm Allison Schutte, here with Willa Walsh and Reagan Skaggs as your co-hosts. And today, as we do for all of our shows, we're playing stories from the Welcome Project archive, and then we get to have a juicy discussion <laughs> about what we hear the storytellers caring about and how then we uh, make meaning from what their stories teach us about our own lives. Anybody want to start anywhere in particular? I'm just curious about which details maybe stood out from her childhood to you, but 
we could go anywhere that you want to go first. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, first we learned that she grew up in a small town in Tennessee and then moved to Chicago. And so the first place that she was in in Tennessee was really small. The only people that they interacted with were at church. And then it, in Chicago, it seems like she got a, quite a few more friends in her neighborhood. But she doesn't really go in depth about like the differences between the two. But that's what stood out to me. Like, or whether she preferred one to the other. Yeah. I mean, she was also five to her credit. True, true, true. (laughs) Things that stand out from her childhood to you, Reagan? She started working when she was 10. (laughs) 10 to 13, No, wait, younger than that for the... Nine, yeah. For the paper route, yeah. She started working when she was nine. And I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think she did, though? Do you think she hated it? I don't know. I, like... I also started working very young, and at the time, I didn't think anything of it, you know? Like, I uh, I mean, she didn't... Her... I had a stepdad later on, too, but grew up mostly with a single mother. Like, if I wanted money for fun things, I had to make yeah. that work. So, like, yeah, I started working, like, very young also. Uh, you know, under the table, like, whatever type of deal. But I, I look and I see... Like, I've worked since I was probably like 13 and I look and I see like my little brother who's 17 and working and I hate it. Like it's not, I don't know. He, you only get one opportunity to be a kid. And I think Mm -hmm. about, I, again, I, not when I was growing up, I didn't think about it that way, but like Mm -hmm. in retrospect and then looking at people younger than me, I think about it that way. Like my cousin who's 14 is trying to get a job and I hate it. I hate that she needs to do that. Is it the need, need to part as opposed to the like wanting to Probably. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I mean, I guess um, there's something about the tone of the storyteller, like her voice. She's obviously an adult looking back, but um, that makes me feel like there's a a certain kind of attachment or pride to working that young, Mm -hmm. Um, which makes me want to say that it was something she was just like, I have an itch and I need to get out there and like make my way in the world. But, um, it does sound like she had a lot of fun playing too. So maybe she would have preferred to just be playing and not do that paper route. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do you want to comment at all on the Chrissy doll? <laughs> well, I think just... it traumatized Willow a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I grew up an only child, so there was never anybody there to terrorize my toys. So Or terrorize you. Or terrorize me, yeah. <laughs> I remember when I was in preschool for the first time, like, you had to share toys, and that was such, like, a foreign concept to me that I would, like, hoard them, and people would try and come and take them. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been trying to get a read on the storyteller's description of the scar that she gave to her brother I for stepbrother for doing that. Like it's a little hard to tell if it's again pride mm-hmm. <laughs> in her scrappiness and her like I'm not taking your s um, <laughs> bleeping myself, um, or if it's a, a just kind of an awareness of like there's some consequences. <laughs> Mm-hmm. to action so be careful <laughs> i don't know reagan is this something that would have happened to you 
We wouldn't have been this directly violent. We just didn't understand the consequences of our actions. I have two brothers. Um, They are wonderful. I love them very much. I get along very well with both of my brothers. One of them is a two-year age gap between me, and the other one is a seven-year age gap. Um, But we used to play this terrible game when we lived out in the country with our favorite climbing tree, where we would climb to the top of the tree, and whoever got to the top first won. However, you were allowed to push each other out of the tree, and we did. (laughs) I mean, it wouldn't have been outrageous for one of us to have uh you know done something similar <laughs> i'm also noting the potential danger in the play in the alleyway with the yes. boxes i can't help but hear some resonance with the neighborhood life that we hear in other flight path stories mm-hmm. and for listeners who don't know the flight paths initiative is a northwest indiana story that it has its heart in gary um and growing up in gary but just more broadly talks about neighborhood life and what it was like growing up, um, mostly in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, I don't know, but I guess I I would hazard to say that this person probably grew up in the 80s or 90s just based on school age for Amanda, who is the one that produced the, the show, mm-hmm. if, this is, if this is their mom. So I'm curious or just interested in the fact that there's a lot of overlap between this out on the street playing until I had to come in because of the street, you know, because it got dark at night. Mm-hmm. And the school freezing the whole schoolyard so that the mm-hmm. kids would have a place to skate as mm-hmm. opposed to like, you know, here in Valpo, we have the new ice rink. I mean, it's maybe it's not new anymore. It still seems relatively new to me because mm-hmm. it's like the last four or five years. I don't know this difference between like the making things happen as opposed to having the resource to simply available. I I don't know if it's nostalgia that I like admire that, or if I also feel like there is something lost when people don't have to make their own play or they don't have to make their own mm. ice rink. <laughs> like that's a community effort. Uh, now mm-hmm. Willow, I'm suddenly thinking of the barn raising. Mm-hmm. We read a, a book. Oh shoot. Now I'm going to forget the name of the writer. He's a, from Montana and was the governor chemist right I don't know oh shoot (laughs) sorry forgive us for our terrible memories here but um he spoke about neighbors and how at that point in time he was talking about barn raising as a specific endeavor that required your neighbors even those you didn't like and get along with like and everybody knew that they were coming to help regardless of like the interpersonal dynamics between you and your neighbors. Um, And he was bemoaning the loss of that and saying that we needed to find a way to have that together. And maybe this is something similar too. And I'm always a little cautious when it's like looking back on the past with like, oh, it was, it was tough then, but we pulled together and Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a gloss on that to be wary of, but I don't know. Do you all feel like there's something valuable here that we are losing or maybe it's appearing in different ways? I don't know. I wonder if it's like easier to do as like a child growing up, Mm -hmm. because I remember my neighbor on Institute when I lived there, like we used to do the craziest things and our parents like never watched us. And so it's like, I remember like we got a tire from an alleyway and we like, like strung it up on a tree with a rope. And like, we were like climbing up there and jumping off. Anyway, like super dangerous stuff. But I think there's like something to like, you know, that is more fun than like going to central elementary and going on the playground. You know, I don't know. There's just, 
something about like creating something yeah. and just kind of like going with it because I think also the experience for ice skating would be different right because it's I guess it's at the schoolyard but you know it's like you have to pay for the Valpo mm. ice skating rink mm. and it's like in public and I don't know there's something more certain hours that you can be on yeah. it for public skating yeah. And, yeah so there's something about like doing it yourself that's kind of I don't know maybe more fun well, I think that's also kind of a combo of things just because um I don't remember the name of the psychologist either, but he did these really cool experiments when he was a younger gentleman where he like would kind of hang out and see where kids would like go to play and like I want to say the 70s and 80s, mm. maybe the 60s, I don't remember. And he would see kind of like map out these like secret areas that were like relatively far from these children's homes that these children were going to play. And then he did the same thing like I don't know 10, 20 years later and those that radius had gotten so much smaller. And part of that is because like of this big fear of like stranger danger and like more um maybe a hyper or over awareness of the things that can happen to a child mm -hmm. like again statistically very unlikely stranger danger is not that helpful of a, a, a thought process when you're looking at crime both in your personal life or systematically but that those fears are there so you have the combination of that so there's less almost less independence for a lot of children in play and then also, like, yeah, everything is monetized. Everything has to be insured. Everything has to, yeah. has to, has to. Which, again, is understandable. But then it creates these situations where, like, there is no third place. There is your, there is no, like, free proper third place besides maybe your public library. Mm -hmm. So I just want to give a shout out to Willow because you're right about the name Chemist. It's Community and the Politics of Place by Daniel Chemist, in case anyone Ooh. is interested <laughs> in reading about barn raising. This is WVLP 103.1 FM, and this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte here with Willow Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. And today we are talking about You Pay For It in the End, which is a story that was edited by a Valparaiso University student, Amanda Yonashadis, for Liz Werfel's podcasting class. And she interviewed her mom to get some feel for her mom's life growing up. Should we go back to work? I don't, I didn't <clears throat> want to pull us, I didn't mean to pull us totally away from that topic. So what, what, how would you describe the storyteller's experience of work? Like from her point of view, what does she seem to care about in work or value or how does she describe it? Like, what would you say her attitude is towards it as far as you can tell from the story that we're given? I mean, I feel like I get a big sense of like independence here because she's talking about like nine and 10, like I would make my own money. And then at 13, I started waitressing. And she's talking about, like, you know, she's making a lot more money than the people around her. So I think there's, like, a sense of pride that, like, she went out and did these things and then she's able to sort of make money from it. But, I mean, I think the only inkling that we get, though, when she talks about maybe the downside is that, you know, she says you pay for it in the end. Like, it seems like she's proud of all of these things that she does, but then is kind of noting maybe it wasn't the best in some ways. Yeah, I definitely want to unpack that phrase, you pay for it in the end, both what we think the storyteller meant and if it also might mean other things given the way the student edited the story. But what did you notice, Reagan, from her attitude, or how would you describe her attitude towards work? I would describe it similarly to Willow, where she like really values both her like ability to work and her ability to, I mean, I would assume work hard and to work well. Um, and she really values, of course, like the money that she's making. But I think that I, what made me 
want the, to pick this story to talk about this story was talking about um how she made a lot of money it's too bad i didn't save it waitresses make good money but you pay for it in the end um and then she paid part of it is because her, your body doesn't work the way that it it does when you're older um and i just had to sit there and think about just about like all the service industry that is primarily made of women, many of them older women, the service industry, especially waitressing in the U.S., where you don't get paid oftentimes a minimum wage. Tips are supposed to be almost your entire wage. And, yeah, you don't get benefits. Like, a no, lot of it's these... it's not a retirement. No, <laughs> a, a lot of these upper-class jobs in status, not necessarily in uh, financial compensation, but in perception, comes with, like, something like a 401k. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not saving for retirement either. Someone else is saving for them. And the same thing with, like, a lot of these benefits. Well, I should have... It's just something I see a lot in, like, the lower class that I live and move with. It's like, well, I didn't have... I didn't save enough money for this medical procedure that I needed. It's like, well, neither did the people who are making more money than you. Mm. They have better insurance. Mm -hmm. Or they have employers who are matching retirement Mm. funds. Or Although I think... That's starting to shift for even ideally corporate yes. jobs um, starting to move away from that model. But yeah, yeah, there's Not a ideally. sense of like you're making good money and it's keeping you and your family, um, you know, living a, a life that 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 you want. But it doesn't include that that concept of savings, mm-hmm. or maybe it does, but it's just hard to do the additional savings. Or there's savings, and then there's saving for retirement. Yeah, those yeah. are two totally different yeah. things. Like you're trying to save enough money for you to retire. I think the official like you can get Social Security is sixty five. Yeah, the people live until their seventies or eighties. You're trying to save enough money where you don't have to work with the addition of Social Security, which is not much. For an additional 15 to 20 years. That is buck wild. Yeah. And hopefully more is like life mm-hmm. extension, like life, uh, what's the Expectancy. Thing? Thank you. <laughs> life extension. I thought that worked. Yeah. <laughs> life expansion. No. Expectancy. expectancy. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's the end of the semester for me, folks. <laughs> my brain is not entirely on all cylinders. I have to say I was a little bit jealous of the $50, $60 a day. I worked as a waitress when I was 16, and I was not making that kind of money. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the particular place where I worked was bringing in the mill workers um, who had those, what it sounds like, still pretty good paychecks at that time for the neighborhood that, that the storyteller was in. Okay, so what else about you pay for it in the end besides the impact or the toll on the body of service industry jobs. Is there other ways that maybe you're paying for it in the end? I mean, they cap you a lot sooner. Like, she talks about how at first she's making more money than anybody she knows, and she's probably right. Uh, like she says, waitresses can make really good money. Like, you can, and you, you can make really, really good money. I know waitresses who do. But there's a definite limit to that money. And there's a definite limit to doing things like getting raises or Mm. moving forward. And Mm -hmm. whether we like it or not, especially as like a waitress or like a woman in the service industry, like some of that is going to be dependent on how you are perceived or how you look or how feminine you present. Like all of things that are going to change and fluctuate with time and your wage is probably not going to change and fluctuate with time. 
Yes, I think they go up very, very, very slowly. <laughs> mm-hmm. If at all. They if don't even all. keep if up with um, inflation. Yeah. I think you're supposed to get like a 2% raise every year if you keep up with inflation. Yeah. I don't get the sense that the storyteller regrets like not going to college, for example. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even seem like something she ever desired in terms of not liking school as a, at least in, in like the K through 12 system. So I wonder if there's, is it just a matter of not having the foresight to save or is their paying for it in the end more of a societal cost as opposed to an individual cost? And I guess that's a lot of what you're already talking about, Reagan. But the storyteller puts it on, on themselves. It's just too bad I didn't save as opposed to recognizing necessarily that there's other ways in which someone who doesn't want to do college and get a degree might not be protected or mm-hmm. encouraged or, or given their own kind of way of contributing to something that is maybe underwritten by government or I don't know I mean like one of my friends was a waitress and I remember like because she had worked at Starbucks and then she moved on to being a waitress and she was making a lot more money as a waitress. But I, I don't know. I feel like I want to challenge like the idea of like I didn't save it because part of yeah. me feels like, you know, maybe there's an aspect of saving. But I remember like when she got the waitressing job, it's like she bought like a TV because her TV was like 20 years old or something. And it's like she got her kids new clothes and she started going back to school online. So it's like she she ended up like paying for like all of these things to sort of like upgrade these necessities yeah. that she had around her. And it's not like she was going on vacations or right, anything. Right. But so it's like I wonder too, it's like is is saving really an option? I mean, I don't know. Like it just, I feel like maybe she's putting too much on herself because it feels like you're just kind of... I don't know, at least for my friend, just buying necessities. And it's like, okay, she could continue to deny herself all of those things and just put that money away. But but I also think about like my mom who's worked like labor jobs and my partner's dad who works, you know, labor jobs. And it's like, I know, we both know that they both don't have plans post when they can no longer work. And that's, I don't know, that's like a scary idea because it's like so much of their work is about their body and their ability to like keep making money. So I don't know. I don't know. I feel like there's... I know the storyteller, it seems to feel like she has a choice in it, but I don't know. I'm feeling like mm-hmm. there's maybe less of a choice than there appears to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's something about the whole enterprise of higher education, career, white collar job that like teaches you or conditions you to do the savings thing, as well as giving you the tools to mm-hmm. actually do that, whether it's mm-hmm. health insurance or a 401k plan or something like, but there's, there's, it's structured in a way to like drive you towards what I think the storyteller means by savings. Mm-hmm. And that like, that's just not part of a kind of minimum wage job mm-hmm. or I, I guess I don't know enough about the mills. I'm assuming a labor union, you probably Unions are pretty good. Going to have like a some kind of retirement plan. So again, there's like all that support that's like kind of teaching you, instructing you, or just uh, like giving you the actual platform in which to do the savings. So yeah, because otherwise, um, there like there shouldn't be any reason to be uh, like against 
flir- like human flourishing while you have the the money to actually mm-hmm. like um again not taking vacations to the Bahamas or something like that but just make sure that you have the goods you need and um ways to keep your kids like up to date with like whatever the school's requiring mm-hmm. them to have in terms of nowadays is technology I mean I guess there's always been some type kind of technology element but certainly seems to have increased no but I, I think ultimately it shouldn't matter that the speaker didn't choose to go to college because again college is not for everyone and like college some people that go to college it ends up being a waste of time for them not all i really value higher education and i would encourage everyone to value whatever education that they get whether that be a college degree whether that be your ged or your high school diploma whether that be reading a lot of books, like that education is really valuable. Learning throughout your life is extremely valuable. I don't mean to demean that in any way. But it shouldn't matter if you went to college or not. Yeah. Because that business needs you to be a waitress. Mm-hmm. And that business needs you to be a waitress, preferably for longer so that they have at least one person on staff who knows what they're doing and who is good at their job and can help the other employees do their job in the way that the business wants them to do. In order for the business to even begin to make profits, step one has to be achieved. So why don't we take care of step one? Like, she is step one. Oh, I love that argument because it's like that's that's something I think about so much when people are like, well, they should just, you know, if they're working at a retail job or something, they should just, they, they chose not to go to school. They chose to be in this position. You know, it's their fault that they can't afford rent. But in reality, it's like, okay, so if she went to college and maybe she was doing something else, there's still going to be a waitress there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that means whoever is doing that job, you think that they deserve to suffer yeah. in some way. Yeah. And again, especially when we come back to, like, okay, so some of these people who you have been consistently devaluing, such as grocery store workers, mm-hmm. other retail workers, are now technically considered emergency personnel. Yes. So where does that fit in that narrative? Because it certainly doesn't fit very well within the narrative of wages and considered importance. Yes. Mm-hmm. That has been so frustrating coming out of this pandemic and just hearing people use that language and call people heroes who are essential mm-hmm. workers, but mm-hmm. just not put anything financial behind that mm-hmm. um, or be willing to shift any, like the fact that in Washington, there's still the same line between Republicans and Democrats about like the role of government in valuing financially or economically in some way these essential workers. And it's just like, why isn't this changing the nature of the conversation? Mm -hmm. But it's just not. Uh, This is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community-supported radio. Also streaming live from WVLP.org. We rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. Please consider supporting this station by visiting our website, wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax deductible, and we here at Listen Up Welcome Project Radio would sure appreciate it, because we like being on the air. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Should we go to our second story for the day then? Yeah, so this one is titled Fascinated by the Steel Mills.
This is WVLP 103.1 FM, community-supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. And this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio, with me, Allison Schutte, and Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. Um, every week on this show, we play some stories from the Welcome Project archive, and then we have a conversation about what we think the storyteller values and how we make sense of that in our own lives um, and in our own day. So today's stories Reagan chose for us specifically around the topic of labor as we are at least as this threesome celebrating the fact that um, Buffalo's Starbucks store chose to unionize and was successful in doing so. So watch out Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Thoughts about this story fascinated by the steel mills and some of the details that we get from this storyteller i feel like it is so very american childhood at least midwestern american childhood to be fascinated by factories okay like so i'm just i was very charmed by that i don't know like i remember as a child um i'm from warsaw indiana which is the orthopedic capital of the world (laughs) (laughs) Um, so we have a lot of factories most people in my family work in at least one of the many factories in my hometown and there's one factory near a township attached to my hometown um i don't think it's an orthopedic factory but it makes these huge smoke clouds which as an adult maybe not so good (laughs) but as a child i was fascinated because i thought that it was a cloud factory (laughs) and that that's where clouds were made and so like i remember that and like my my dad and my previous stepmom um, were obsessed with a show called How It's Made, and I remember being so fascinated by some of those episodes of like the, how things are like manufactured. Like I don't think you can grow up like as an American, maybe lower class kid, and not be a little interested in like factories. I so I grew up in Decatur, Illinois, um, which is like in the heart of Illinois, and it is it used to be the soybean capital of the world before I think some city in China took over that. Rude. Like maybe when I was in high school or something <laughs> like that. But like everything's like it's Soy Capital Bank, it's WSOY is the radio station. It took me a really long time <laughs> to realize that soy appearing in titles was actually related to the fact that we were the swiping capital of the world. Anyway, <laughs> so a lot of um food processing plants are in Decatur and um there's one that's located not too far off downtown and if I went with my dad to work because my grandfather owned a scale company but it was like the really really big scales like the truck scales so they would often do work at these big factories so we would drive the overpass that um, cut Staley's one of those big um, factories in half Um, so the overpass would allow you get o- to get over the factory basically so everything like there was like train tracks running underneath that and all the big smokestacks and I always thought it smelled like potato chips so I liked it but I guess strangers that come to Decatur are like what's that smell <laughs> don't I guess it's not appetizing to everybody <laughs> um yeah so like really impressive in scale but I never <laughs> I never thought about, well, I didn't live close enough to go run around down there, but I know my child self and she would not have been like (laughs) sneaking in behind the gates, probably because, you know, I obeyed more or less, um, uh, the rules. 
but yeah, I don't know. My fascination was not like, can I get down in there and see what's mm-hmm. going on? Um, it was more like a backdrop that I just was like, this is our city. This is our, this is how people make their living and things like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did you, do you have factory stories, Willow? At I all? mean, well, I grew up here in Valpo. So I just, I remember going, maybe it's like off of 20 when you're, um, it's probably not of 20, but there's like, you know, when you go towards the steel mills, maybe there's, it's like the BP place. But anyway, oh, at yeah. night, it's like when like all of the beams and whatnot are all lit up. It, mm-hmm. it's, it looks like a city. It looks so intense. Yeah. Like you can mm-hmm. just see it from so far away. But I don't know. I mean, I think it is kind of fascinating because, you know, he mentions like there weren't fences then, but there are fences now. So there's something sort of alluring that there's like a fence keeping this like giant city going or something that are, that's in there so i think it is interesting it's definitely captivating yeah well it's just awesome there are so many like american vacation spots that are just like tours of factories like oh, the really? biggest yeah like hershey pennsylvania you want to tour the hershey factory uh, okay you want to go to i think it's in atlanta that you can tour the coca-cola factory Again, maybe we just because gonna... I'm I'm the lower class lady, but <laughs> well, people but that I know food factories makes a little bit more sense to yeah. me. Like in terms of there's a, like a connection, like you yeah. maybe drink Coke or you maybe have eaten Hershey's, and so yeah. But I just there's like those kinds of destinations, and like a lot of a fair amount of like the work that I grew up around at least is like factory work. I know that's like kind of going more and more as time goes on, and then like there. are... Like, there are shows, like, how it's made on, like, all these different, like, networks where it just shows you, like, do you want to see how they make, like, mustard? Here's how they make mustard in a factory. Like, like this show's been going on for, like, ten years. Like, I don't know. And there's so many elements of, like, factory life as, like, symbolism within, like, American media. I I feel like Americans have a special relationship historically, culturally, with factories. Well, I think so much of our capacity as a nation has been built on factories right we came in right after the industrial revolution so we were the perfect time to optimize ourselves for better or for worse for manufacturing and for factories and i know i have this odd sense of pride when i go to the dunes and like we have the lake and the beach and then on the east we have gary and burns harbor and on the west we have Michigan City's uh, power plant and they're so visible from the shore and most people would be critical of that for the way industry is not just polluting, which mm-hmm. I am very critical of industry yes. polluting the environment, Yes, but I mean like they would see it as polluting the landscape, the visual mm-hmm. landscape, right? So, um, and I remember when the park became the national park and mm-hmm. so it drew a lot of attention. There was people in the New York Times who were coming and they were like, hmm, those steel mills though, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm just like, hey. <laughs> those are our steel mills. <laughs> um, so I feel like there's a little bit of that here with the storyteller too. And the word fascinating, that's like about wonder mm-hmm. and awe. And there's something about kids being able to access that in unusual places <laughs> mm-hmm. right uh that that as adults we might lose or maybe if we don't lose we maybe it's because we've been shaped to to be fascinated by things as kids but yeah i wonder what you know what will be fascinating for the digital native generations that are coming up something about virtual reality or something <laughs> i don't know 
on the I, iPad kids. Like, what is it that, I guess your fascination will be driven inward into the worlds that are on the other side of the screen rather than the world that's around you. Or maybe it doesn't have to be either or, you know? Well, and it could also go the complete other direction. It could be like, I grew up watching, like, I don't know, I feel like a lot of kids in the TV, like the quote-unquote TV generation, which my current stepmom is part of, are like, either go in and they're still like, yeah, no, TV is the thing that I do for fun. And that is the thing. Or they, they go the totally other direction. And they're like, yeah, no, I don't like that. I don't like that I grew up that way. I hike every weekend, you know. You never know how people are going to respond. That's true. That's but true. It's, it will be interesting to see. And I'm also curious. Yeah. Uh, one thing that always strikes me about this story is the fact that there is such a harsh environmental impact mm-hmm. that's actually happening in the midst of his wonder and he's such a good storyteller and in including all of those details, you know, like the soot that's on the windowsill. And is this the one where it's the, the uh, laundry yeah. on mm-hmm. the line? And I mean, he even talks about the oral, the audio sounds. Right. Mm-hmm. And I would think that for a lot of people that could be its own kind of pollution, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it could be for somebody who has to get up for that early shift like, not great to be hearing the boom, boom, boom. I don't know. What do you two make of that, the layering of the harm and the wonder at the same time? I think that is what adulthood is about navigating. <laughs> <laughs> or at least in my experience, that's what adulthood has been navigating. It's just having this, like, fascination with things that you know are bad, and not in a, like, stereotypical, like, teenage movie way, like, dating a bad person way, Mm -hmm. but just in the, like, I know that this thing is not good. I know that this factory is hurting my my family, my neighbors, my community. I know that they are not taking the appropriate precautions that they should be taking, um, environmentally speaking, or I know they are not compensating people well, or they are doing things uh, that are kind of sketchy or shady so that their product is not as effective, like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I have a nostalgia about it, and I have a fondness towards it for that. And I think adulthood is all about acknowledging that for yourself because it's important to be kind to yourself but then also being like okay but i have to be a mature person and also realize that just because i like this doesn't mean that it is good like beyond what i recognize as its Mm -hmm. awesomeness yeah like i hope that when i eventually have children or whatever um, I don't want them to think that factories are a cloud factory. <laughs> mm. I don't want them to see that, ideally. I don't want them to see, like, their air being polluted in front of them. That would be an ideal situation. Um, but I will say that it is a very positive childhood memory for me of, like, mm-hmm. talking with my parents about how, like, look, there's the cloud factory every time we drove past it. You know, there's that line. And it's the same thing, I think, that the speaker seems to kind of be experiencing or acknowledging, at least, of, like... I was really fascinated by this. It's like this really cool forbidden place and it's like capable of so much, like Hmm. so much light and so much sound and so much movement and so many people, like it is capable of so much. And I'm fascinated by that capability and how it, it morphed the place that I lived, but also like all the people in that area may get like lung diseases. Yeah. Yeah. They may, like a lot of these people probably died young because they were working in these factories. You know, there's, you know, nostalgia and desire and like interest and then remembering the real life 
parts of your nostalgia, interests, curiosity, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. This is WVLP 103.1 FM, and we're community-supported radio in Valparaiso, Indiana. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison, and I'm here with Willow and Reagan doing our thing, <laughs> talking about uh, Welcome Project stories and unpacking them a bit for their meaning in our lives today. I wonder, Willow, if you have any thoughts about this layering of wonder and harm. I... I, I would agree that I think he's a really excellent storyteller and that he's really capturing this sort of wonder. And I mean, we don't know if he feels that way today, but I don't know, Reagan, I feel like I would do the exact opposite. <laughs> like if I had kids, which I don't think so, because we spent holidays with children too much. But <laughs> um, but there's like, I would much rather be like, hey, look at the cloud factory. Like if I have a house there and I can't like pick up and move somewhere nice, because, like, I don't know, it's like, I feel like as an adult, I've gotten so, I've, I get grumpier and grumpier every year. Mm -hmm. And I would rather not start that at, like, five and just be like, look at those those polluters out there. You should hate those people. I don't know. It's like, that, that will come with time. <laughs> but I think there's something, yeah, like, really awesome about just kind of recognizing how, I don't know, as, like, a kid, like, how big it is and, like, all of these different facets of it that's, that's really engaging um, but I don't know now it's like when I take Erica to work, that's my partner, when I take her to work, like up in like Whiting and I get off on 94 and oh my gosh, there's either like a, like there's the BP factory over there. So if there's a train, all bets are off. I'm there for like 20 minutes cause it's the slowest moving train because it can't spark cause we're in a gas factory. Ugh, and it's just, it smells so horrible. And like the Unilever yeah. places mm -hmm. out there too. It's a soap factory and it smells so horrible all Lies the time. Lie and animal fat. It smells horrible. <laughs> and so it's just like, you can even smell it coming off the toll road, like miles away. Like it's just horrible. And I just, I don't know. I get so irritated by it now. It's like, it's still kind of amazing as a place just that it's there and it and it can exist and like has so much output but I don't know I'm just I get so annoyed with it now that I feel like I but I do have the childhood memories of like thinking of it as this like really amazing place it's like the cloud factory and it being really cool so I don't know I'm glad that I have that but I trust myself to get grumpier over time with things <laughs> I don't feel like it makes me grumpy though. I mean, maybe other people would disagree. <laughs> I feel like it's again, it's complicated, right? Because like I, the, I, the orthopedic factories in my area, I, to be honest, do not fully understand their environmental impact. It's not as straightforward as something like, in my opinion, as a steel mill mm -hmm. or um, as a, you can smell how, how bad it smells. It's not as straightforward. Um, because it has to be a sterile environment. So the factories in my area are very contained because they're putting fake bones in people's bodies. I like that it's contained. That is a good thing. So it's this complicated thing of I don't know their environmental impact, but I do know about how they treat their employees and what their labor looks like. And what that looks like is like frequently hiring temps and promising them stuff like full-time and then getting rid of them within like six to eight months so that they don't have to give them benefits and doing that over and over and over again with the population both in my small town and in the surrounding small towns which are even smaller than mine and come to mind for places to work so i know that this is like a backbone of my community and i know that many of my family members work and are able to live due to working in this backbone of the community and I also know that it's not treating the people that work there well. 
So absolutely, any chance that I would personally have to talk about labor rights or to somehow be involved with that or whatever, like to encourage or to protest like poor labor treatment is something while also simultaneously being grateful that those jobs are there. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's also where it is for me is like, I am angry. (laughs) I am angry about pollution. I am angry about particularly in this area, um, the environmental racism that a lot of these factories bring on. Um, I am angry about those things, but I also, the more adult part of me has to acknowledge like the necessity of capitalism and the necessity of work in the way that we live now. So it's not like it blinds me, my Mm -hmm. anger. Mm -hmm. It's to be tempered with other knowledge that I have to move forward through the world where I am very enthusiastic and happy that the Starbucks unionized. Um, And I also acknowledge that Starbucks' recent announcement to raise at least everybody in the nation to $15 an hour is a strategy to reduce more unions from Mm -hmm. happening. But I can acknowledge that and be grateful for the pay raise. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like, you have to accept something if you're going to live in a capitalist society. So I'm excited about the unions. I hope for more unions. I will do what I can in that regard. Like, I will donate. I will talk about it, et cetera, et cetera. I will maybe even consider trying to maybe shove some union materials wherever I'm at. But <laughs> but um, I will also take the $15 an hour. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I'm, I'm with you, though I recognize that... So what I'm thinking is, is it possible to maintain wonder at the same time that your criticism becomes really sharp? And I I think there's this sense in me that if I have any joy or wonder at something that I'm participating in, it will dampen my Mm -hmm. criticism. Mm -hmm. And it has been true that the more critical I become of something, the less joy and wonder I have about it. Mm-hmm. So I've, I, my experience of these two things has been one or the other, but I do think that there's value in just recognizing that they're always intertwined. This is probably farther than we can go. And maybe it's unfair because coal country is not like our part of the world, but I often think about that for the worry that people who work the mines and whose communities well-being has been built on the mines, they, of course, don't want their source of income to be taken away from them. So there's a, there's a fight for economic freedom that's a part of that. At the same time, the, the mines themselves are not only damaging to climate, they're also damaging to the workers that are there, part of that industry. And so I fear that if you have some sort of pride or wonder about the fact that your community has invested themselves in this labor that's very difficult and dangerous and that connection to your, like, I will do whatever I need to do for my family. And if that means that I pay a high cost, that, that just, that just reflects well on my character. Mm. Like, I feel like that's got us, see, I'm saying us, but 
I see the trap of like, mm-hmm. then you can't think beyond the minds as your resource for your community's well-being. But I, maybe again, I'm trying to make it way more simple than it actually is. Cause like how, like, what do you do? How do you replace that industry for? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's what it comes like what I was saying earlier is the, like, that's what adulthood is, is navigating that is navigating the wonder and the, the, the pain of knowing, I guess, <laughs> which is terrible. But part of that is, you know, you see the thing. You have a strong attachment to the thing for whatever reason, um, such as like culturally, like being a coal miner, taking pride in that, taking pride in however many years you've put in or that your family has been doing it for generations, like whatever, whatever, whatever. And then it's still acknowledging like the cultural importance of this thing to these this wide swath of people and to this community and to this like these states. Also understanding that it is ultimately bad like it's a net negative i would say you could call it bad for pretty much everybody involved and acknowledge that there is going to be pain there and also acknowledging that there needs to be change and then trying to put that change while acknowledging that not everybody is going to be okay with that or like that mm-hmm. that is also part of adulthood like you don't get to please everyone and like you don't always get to know what to do either mm. which is not very fun <laughs> It's a good note to end on, even if not a fun note. (laughs) Uh, Before we head out today, uh, we just want to encourage you to check out WVLP's full schedule. You can find it at their website, WVLP.org. Personally, at Listen Up, we highly recommend Morning Black, which airs live every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Black stands for Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge, and it's a platform for discussions surrounding the concerns of race and ethnicity specifically addressing concerns within and about the African-American community. And Morning Black is underwritten by donations from members of the Northwest Indiana African-American Alliance and their community partners. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanayogacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are also open for business at their locations downtown on Lincoln Way. Visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. Find us. You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support WVLP and our show, you can make a donation by going to wvlp.org support.